Our text this morning is Psalm 63. It's 11 verses long, and that would be a lot to cover in in any circumstances, but before we go verse by verse through this psalm, I want to try to explain to you the historical setting of it and show you where this passage fits in the Old Testament timeline. You have probably sung or recited parts of Psalm 63, and so I know you're going to recognize it. But you may never have studied the background of it, so we're going to do that this morning. Psalm 63. Spurgeon said about this psalm that it is peculiarly suitable for the bed of sickness or in any constrained absence from public worship. And so I first began to pay close attention to this psalm back in 2020, the year all of us were somewhat constrained from public worship for part of the year, but I think this is a helpful psalm to study no matter what your circumstances. So Psalm 63, I hope you're there by now. Notice the superscription, verse 1. This is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, by, by my count, this is the 13th psalm that I've preached from in this pulpit since uh, 1998, and, and I've lost count of how many times I've gone to the Psalms in Grace Life, but if you've heard very many of those messages, you'll know that if a Psalm has a superscription, that little line at the top, you'll, I, I always comment on it, because it's my conviction that these notes are part of the inspired text, and in most of your Bibles, they'll be set in boldface or a smaller typeface, So you might get the idea that these are editorial comments that have been added by the publisher, you know, like the subheadings that are in some of your Bibles. Those subheadings are not inspired, but uh, and the footnotes, of course, they're not inspired, but they're John MacArthur's footnotes, you know, so, but they're not inspired. But you understand, I hope, whatever headings and footnotes you might have in your Bible, are not actually part of the inspired text, but these inscriptions at the beginning of the Psalms are. These are not publisher's notes. They're translated from the original manuscripts, and sometimes you'll hear them referred to as titles. They aren't really titles. They're, they're marginalia, we call them in publishing. They're, they record points of vital information about the Psalm, uh, but they're not part of the Psalm. So if you were a singer in a choir performing the psalm, you wouldn't sing that part. And in fact, the superscriptions generally answer questions, sometimes for the musicians. They also answer questions like, who's the author of this? Or what was the occasion that prompted him to write this particular psalm? Or where and when was it written? And some of the inscriptions, as I said, they're they're notes for the musicians. They're musical notations, such as What tune was used to sing this psalm? What instruments were used as an accompaniment? What tempo or style it's supposed to be sung with? And we've lost the meaning of some of those musical notations. We don't really even know what they mean. But this one tells us when and where it was written. That David wrote it, and he was in the wilderness of Judah at the time. And the words of the psalm express distress and fatigue. And he mentions in verse 9 that people are seeking his life to destroy it. So we know from the text itself, he's on the run. He is clearly not in the wilderness by choice. 
And the wilderness of Judah, a very specific place, it's called the Judean Desert on most modern maps, and it's a barren but mountainous wasteland. Most of it is about 30 miles wide. It's directly west of the Dead Sea, but it also extends a bit north beyond Jericho. And so it's a rocky, rough, mountainous region, hostile to human life. It's not quite 100 miles long from north to south, on average about 30 miles wide from east to west. And the portion that is just north of the Dead Sea is bisected by the Jordan River. So technically, once you cross to the east of the Jordan, you're not in the wilderness of Judah anymore. That area was called Gilead in David's time. But it's all a great wasteland, and the whole area actually bears a striking resemblance to Death Valley in the Mojave Desert except that there's just one thin strip of green, just about 400 yards wide, where the Jordan River runs through it. The only town in this region is Jericho at 846 feet below sea level. That, by the way, is the lowest city in the world. It's a lower elevation than any other city inhabited area in the world. Jericho is built around an oasis that uh, in this otherwise vast wilderness gives a source of shade and water, and it's still not a very pleasant place to be. Practically all the rest of the Judean wilderness is literally uninhabitable, virtually barren of life, lacking any source of drinkable water. This is where John the Baptist had preached. Remember, he preached in the wilderness. Jesus ministered there for a while as well. It's not a convenient place to travel to, and it's not a comfortable place to stay, and that's the geographical setting for this psalm. Now, there were two periods in David's life when he was forced into exile in this wilderness. One was a long period of time before he took the throne as king of Israel. You remember that Samuel had anointed David to be the king in 1 Samuel 16, And at that time, David was described as a youth, probably still a teenager, when he was anointed as a king. And Saul saw David as a serious threat and and so drove him into hiding. And in fact, Saul would have killed David if he could. So starting in 1 Samuel 20 and for about 12 chapters or so in the Old Testament, David is hiding from Saul in order to to preserve his life. And this has him repeatedly crisscrossing this mountainous part of the Judean wilderness west of the Dead Sea until Saul finally dies. And then David has to fight a battle in order to establish himself as the rightful king of Israel. But when all of that is over, 2 Samuel 5 verse 4 tells us, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. So that means 30 years old when he actually took the throne. That's not when he was anointed. He was much younger. But he became king, took the throne, and reigned for 40 years. So for at least 15, maybe 20 years of David's first three decades, he had spent lots of time in the Judean wilderness. But apparently, this psalm actually pertains to a later period in David's life because in verse 11, the closing verse He refers to himself as the king. And so this psalm seems to come from a time after David was 
no longer being threatened and hunted by Saul after he had taken the throne, after he was the rightful king and in his office on the throne as king. But notice also verse 9 of our psalm where he speaks of those who seek my life to destroy it. So he's clearly on the run from deadly enemies again, and that narrows down the occasion of this psalm to just one possibility. There's only one other time that David was driven into the Judean wilderness by enemies who pursued him and wanted to take his life, and the chief enemy at that point was his own beloved son, Absalom, who rebelled against him. And David had to flee Jerusalem, and he went into that same section of the Judean wilderness that he had hidden from Saul. Near Jericho, this spot probably is. And in fact, if if you're familiar with this part of David's life, you know that Absalom had purposely undermined his father's reputation and credibility, and, and he tried to usurp the throne. Absalom wanted his father to have to step down so he could be the king. And 2 Samuel 14.25 tells us that in all Israel, there was no one as handsome as Absalom, no one so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, there was no defect in him. It's talking physically, of course. In fact, if you want to follow this story in your Bible, mark your place here in Psalm 63 and turn with me to 2 Samuel 15, and we'll take it up there. In fact, let's do this. Mark, mark your place in the psalm, go to 2 Samuel 15, and be prepared to flip through some pages for a few minutes. 2 Samuel 15, verse 2, tells us, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and when any man had a case to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would intercept that person, and verse 3, say to him, see, your words are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. And then Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any case or judgment could come to me, and I would justify him. And then verse 6 says, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, which, by the way, that shows the utter fickleness of the whole nation. They abandoned the king who was chosen by God and of whom the Lord said, I found David, a man after my own heart. But the gullible hearts of the people were stolen with remarkable ease by this young charismatic guy who had a deceitful, rebellious heart and a gift for propaganda, right? He, he would have made a, a good network news guy in our time. And David, of course, was not totally blameless in all of this. He had sinned with Bathsheba. He'd had Uriah killed, and the whole scandal had become public. David had basically bartered away a large portion of his own respectability by committing that series of sins and and trying to keep it under wraps for so long. And so Absalom's rebellion was a direct and disastrous consequence of David's own sin. Maybe this was the, in fact, not just maybe, I think this was the most personally painful aspect of all of the fallout from that whole episode, of all the consequences David had to bear because of his sin. The rebellion of his son was no doubt the most painful and far-reaching. And still, it's, it is remarkable that, that at this late point in David's otherwise stellar career, after he had done all he had done to 
unite the nation and uh, restore the ark to Jerusalem and establish the throne that would ultimately be occupied by the promised Messiah after he had confessed his sin, after he had received the Lord's forgiveness and shown himself faithful in the forsaking of his sin. And even with all of that, the people of Israel permitted him to be publicly humiliated and driven into exile. People are fickle. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13, then an informant came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have followed Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, for otherwise there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us hastily and drive calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so In other words, rather than have Jerusalem set ablaze by war and riots, David fled the city. And hundreds of people who were still faithful to David went with him. Verse 23 says, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness." Now, there's an interesting vignette at that point that gives us some insight into David's heart. It shows us the, his deep confidence in the faithfulness of God. Verse 24, still 2 Samuel 15, Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. In other words, if... If David had to leave Jerusalem and evacuate the city, the priests, these were the leading priests, they wanted the Ark of the Covenant to go with David. It had been about a century since the time of Samuel when, you remember, the Israelites carried the Ark into battle thinking it was a a talisman or a good luck charm that would save them in war, and uh, they thought like it was magic or something and was going to guarantee a military victory. And on that day, the Philistines captured the ark. Samuel and both of his sons all died that day, and the ark remained out of place for nearly a hundred years until David himself had finally brought it to Jerusalem. And now here, as David prepares to leave Jerusalem in order to avoid a war with his own son on the streets of the city. The priests want the ark to stay with David. After all, this symbolized the power and the presence of God with his people. But David had a different perspective. In the first place, he wasn't going to treat the ark like a good luck charm. He knew better than that. In the second place, He knew that the rightful place for the ark was in Jerusalem. And in the third place, David was confident that God is sovereign. And so 2 Samuel 15, 25, the king said to Zadok, return the ark to the city. If I find favor in the sight of Yahweh, then he will cause me to return and show me both it and his habitation. In other words, I'll come back to the ark rather than carrying it with me. But if God should say this, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good in his sight. And so he leaves the whole matter in the hands of God. Now, remember, God had promised to establish David's throne in Jerusalem forever. And David is willing to entrust himself to that promise and to the perfect will of God. 
And so he sent not only the ark back to Jerusalem, he also told Zadok, the priest, to go back to Jerusalem as well. And then verse 30 tells us, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered as he was walking barefoot, and all the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went. Now, if you know the geography of the area, you'll know the ascent of the Mount of Olives, what it describes there, that is the last hill out of town. And from that point, the road actually winds and descends through 18 miles of wilderness and desert all the way down to Jericho. In other words, David marched right back into the wilderness of Judea. And 2 Samuel 16 describes a famous incident that happened that day on that journey. We've looked at this passage before where a worthless man named Shimei cursed David and threw dirt on him and mocked him. And verse 13 says, Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. That's a a passage that interests me greatly. As I said, I've preached on it before. Maybe I will again someday. But for now, it's sufficient to say that all of the dirt and indignity that Shimei was throwing on David was something that no rightful ruler should ever have to endure, even, even ones you don't like. Don't treat them this way. But David bore it with incredible meekness. This was no doubt the lowest day in his entire career as a king, at least as far as his feelings were concerned. He's in deep distress. He's being publicly humiliated. It's a long journey through an extremely hostile climate But David and his entourage finally arrive at that little strip of greenery where the River Jordan bisects this otherwise barren desert, 2 Samuel 16, verse 14. You can turn there, 2 Samuel 16, 14. Then the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. It's the river, fresh water. He refreshes himself. And at that very moment when David reached the Jordan... Absalom was entering Jerusalem in apparent triumph. And so the very next verse, verse 15, tells us, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, had entered Jerusalem. And here's the worst thing. In a symbolic gesture meant to shame David and publicly declare Absalom's supremacy over his father, verse 22 says, They pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines, in the sight of all Israel, which if, if you know your Old Testament, you'll realize this was a literal fulfillment of precisely what God had said was going to happen as a consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. One of the leading men who sided with Absalom in this rebellion was Ahithophel. Ahithophel had formerly served David as one of his counselors, but He was a politician and a political opportunist, and on that same evening when David and the remnant of faithful people were arriving at the Jordan River, 2 Samuel 17, verse 1, tells us, then Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight, and I will come upon him while he is weary with his hands falling limp 
and throw him into utter fright so that all the people who are with him will flee. And then I will strike down the king alone and I will cause all the people to return to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. In other words, he's going to kill David and that then would leave all the people who were faithful to David with no choice other than to go back to Jerusalem and be subservient to Absalom. It was a shrewd plan, actually, politically. But it didn't happen, thankfully, because Hushai was another of David's counselors who remained also in Jerusalem. But Hushai was still secretly faithful to David, and he told Absalom that David was too experienced in warfare to fall for Ahithophel's plan, and it might go very badly on the scale of public opinion if Absalom showed up with armies and ended up slaughtering a bunch of people whose only crime was their faithfulness to David. And so in the middle of that night, Zadok and the priests managed to get news to David about Absalom's plans, and 2 Samuel 17.22 says, David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan, and by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. So before sunup on the next morning, David and his people resumed their journey, and they went another 15 to 20 miles north and east of where they had crossed the Jordan, and finally stopped in a town called Mahanaim. Mahanaim. By the way, to get from where they crossed the river to Mahanaim is a long and difficult journey through harsh terrain. Verse 27 says, Now it happened that when David had come to Mahanaim, a group of noblemen from that region brought beds and basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, roasted seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. And they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And so they arrive and are treated with this great feast. And I think that's the setting for our psalm. The one moment that best fits the occasion that is described in the superscription of Psalm 63 is that half night in the desert, in the wilderness of Judah, just before the messengers came from Zadok and told David that he better keep moving because there was a plot to come and kill him. It's the only time that we have any record of David in the wilderness being pursued by adversaries after he had already become king. It's the one time in his entire career where you have that. So now, with that historical background in mind, turn back to Psalm 63. And so here's the setting while you're turning there. David and his people have basically spent one long, soul-crushing day fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem traveling through a dry, dusty, barren wilderness, and then they have half a night trying to camp near the Jordan River. And I hope you can imagine what their hunger and thirst would have been like when they arrived at the river. Earlier, I read First Samuel or Second Samuel sixteen fourteen, where it says, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Here's the rest of that verse. And David refreshed himself there. And that, that is the point in the biblical narrative where most likely David wrote this psalm. While he was exhausted and had just refreshed himself, 
Perhaps while the people who were with him were drinking water and washing off the dust from the desert, or more likely after they had made camp and everyone was beginning to try to get some sleep, David sits down and writes these words, which had most likely already been forming in his mind all day long. And so the historical setting fits perfectly with the tone and the words of this psalm. It's only 11 verses long, so listen while I'll read the complete psalm. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will laud you. Thus I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fatness and richness, and my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for foxes. But the king will be glad in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. So here's a man who is beleaguered and in trouble. His soul is thirsty. His flesh is fainting. I've been reading there from the Legacy Standard Bible. It says, my flesh yearns for you. The New King James Version says, my flesh longs for you. And the Hebrew original uses a word that has both of those ideas. It's a pining, passionate, fatigue-inducing desire, both longing and fainting, reminiscent of Psalm 84, verse 2 in the King James My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And the ESV in our verse 1 puts the stress on that feeling of feebleness and exhaustion. My flesh faints for you. And David is dry and weary as the wilderness he's been trudging through all day long is also dry and weary, but he he might be camped for the moment by a river, but this is going to be a sleepless night. His adversaries are still in close pursuit. They're being led by his own favorite son who has turned against him with an almost irrational enmity. So thinking of all of that, just put yourself with a little bit of empathy in David's mind. There is not anything about his circumstances or his surroundings that you could expect to elicit a song of joy, right? But he writes this beautiful and ultimately uplifting hymn of praise and hope. It's amazing to think that this psalm, which has brought encouragement and strength to multitudes over generations of time, and we have many songs that are drawn from this text alone, this was written in one of the most difficult, lowest most agonizing points in David's life and career. He's fleeing a trained army of fighting men who have been assigned to find him and kill him. 
and from that in, for that entire day, as, as far as he could see in any direction, as he's fleeing, he is surrounded by parched, worn-out, rocky barrenness. So his soul is thirsty in every possible sense. His flesh is fainting in every way you could think, and he can't sleep, and he has nothing to look forward to on the journey that lies ahead of him, but more miles, 20 more miles of this dry and weary land. Not one thing in that desert affords a single note of hope for him except for the grace and goodness of a loving God. And so that's what he sings about. And this is pure, heartfelt praise. This is a hymn of joy. As I said, we got many of our songs come from this, and they're all upbeat, uplifting psalms. When you realize the circumstances in which this is written, that's remarkable. There's not a single petition or complaint or even a question in this entire psalm. This is how David refreshed himself. When Scripture says he refreshed himself, I don't think it's only talking about the water from the Jordan River. He refreshed himself with praise. And in fact, refreshment is the central theme of this psalm. That opening verse paints a verbal picture of someone who is dehydrated, physically drained, marooned in the desert, or in the language of the psalm itself. He's a thirsty soul with fainting flesh in a dry and weary land. Three threats to his physical well-being that add to the already deep distress of his personal problems. He's parched, he's exhausted, he's in grave peril. But his response is to answer his own bodily anguish with this song about spiritual refreshment. And the psalm divides pretty naturally into three stanzas. Each stanza has a different point of view, and the stanzas answer each of those three physical afflictions in turn. Stanza one, that's verses one through four, you could title today. Here David tells us where he finds relief to quench his thirsty soul. Stanza 2, verses 5 through 8, we'll call that one tonight. And here he tells us where he finds relief to strengthen his fainting flesh. And then stanza 3, verses 9 through 11, we'll call that one tomorrow. Here he looks forward to the relief he will experience when, as he knows will happen the Lord is going to deliver him out of that dry and weary land. So let's consider those stanzas one at a time, starting with stanza one, which I've titled today. The the first words of this psalm summarize the whole answer to David's distress. Oh God, you are my God. You are my God. And thus he declares his faith and his personal allegiance to God. Thomas Horton was a professor of theology and president of Queen's College, Cambridge, back during the Puritan era, and he said that statement, oh God, you are my God, is not so easily said as the world imagines it. Indeed, it's easy to the mouth, but it's not so easy to the heart. It's easy to have a fancy to say it, but it's not really easy to have the faith to say it. It's an expression that obviously describes an intimate personal relationship between the psalmist and his God, but get this, 
the point David is making is not that God belongs to David, but that David belongs to God. It's an expression of devotion and desire for God. As much as he feels his, this literal thirst for water, as much as he craves renewal for his physical strength, in the same way and with a similar intensity, his spirit is longing for God. And in the King James Version, the psalm actually opens like this, O oh God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. In most modern translations, it'll say something like this, I shall seek you earnestly, that's the Legacy Standard Bible, or I eagerly seek you, that's the Christian Standard Bible. So what is the correct translation? Is the, does the word mean early or eager? And the Hebrew word there actually symbolizes the, the deepest kind of longing, eagerness, yes, solemn earnestness, zeal, but the root of the Hebrew word is the word for dawn. So it also has the implication of earliness, morning time. In fact, Spurgeon says early is the distinguishing word of this psalm. So I like the King James and the New King James Version, early will I seek you. Uh, and that, by the way, is the first of three time indicators you find in this psalm. In fact, the titles I've given to the three stanzas are based on them, today, tonight, and tomorrow. Here he seems to be thinking of morning time today. In verse 6, he'll mention lying on his bed in the night watches, nighttime, tonight. And in verse 9, he shifts into the future tense using auxiliary verbs like will, shall, shall be, will be, a total of six times in those three verses. So there he's looking ahead at tomorrow. That's why I've titled these stanzas, Today, Tonight, and Tomorrow. But the psalm starts with this reference to seeking God early and earnestly. The word means really both things. Because, because of that word early, this psalm has been sometimes referred to as a morning psalm. Morning meaning early in the day, not morning like sorrow, but a morning psalm. Chrysostom, who was perhaps the greatest and best-known preacher of the third century, said it had been the practice of the church since the time of the primitive church fathers to sing this psalm publicly every day in the morning. And it was clearly David's habit to start every day by seeking communion with the Lord in prayer and worship. Psalm 5, verse 3, O Yahweh, in the morning you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Psalm 119, 147. I eagerly greet the dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. And this was a common expression among Old Testament saints. Psalm 88, verse 13. As for me, O Yahweh, I have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Isaiah 26, 9. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. And it was the practice, of course, of Jesus to seek his God in prayer at the start of each day. Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up and went out of the house and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. So that's why I've titled this first stanza today, David starts each day in pursuit of fellowship with the Lord and that craving, which is comparable to thirst in a dry desert, 
stays with him all day. That desire for God influences every aspect of his life. Now, verse 2, and here's my paraphrase of what he's saying. Thus, meaning in, in that same way, like a, a thirsty man in the wilderness, and with that same hungry craving, I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And I think what he has in mind is the tangible symbol of God's power and glory, namely the Ark of the Covenant. Psalm 78 verse 60 says, the Lord abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he caused to dwell among men, and gave up his power to captivity and his glory into the hands of the adversary. That's talking about when the ark was captured. Shiloh is where the tabernacle stood after the Israelites had conquered Canaan, and that's where the ark resided before the Israelites lost it to the Philistines. And Philippines? I almost said that. Those warlike Filipinos. Huh? <laughs> they almost lost it to the Philistines. And, and when that verse says, the Lord delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe, it's talking about the ark. And so the words power and glory are used in Psalm 78 as poetic euphemisms for the Ark of the Covenant. And here in Psalm 63, when David refers to God's power and his glory residing in the sanctuary, I think it's reasonable to read that as a reference to the symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant. And bear in mind that less than 24 hours before he he apparently wrote this psalm, David had instructed the priests to return the ark to its rightful place in Jerusalem. And here he's simply simply noting in this psalm how he longs, how it is his habit to to long for God in the place where that temple, where that uh, ark resided. And he clearly wants to go back there and do it again. So to translate, David is confessing that the literal thirst and bodily fatigue that he feels after a march through the desert is this is perfectly analogous to his yearning for fellowship and communion with God. He feels the same kind of craving, whether he's in the sanctuary in Jerusalem or stranded in the desert with his life in jeopardy. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? I mean, if I were, after a day-long march through the desert, knowing that an army is pursuing me to take my life, that would pretty much occupy my mind. In David's mind, that was merely symbolic of his real craving for fellowship with God. And I think the next phrase, starting with the word because, goes with the phrases that precede it, despite how it's punctuated in most translations. David is telling us what makes his spiritual thirst so intense. He's answering questions that would be on any thoughtful reader's mind, like, why is David writing about his craving for God rather than the physical agony and, and the dehydration that he surely felt after a day of difficult journeying through the desert? What is it that makes his spiritual appetite the overpowering desire that he felt and wrote about even more than his literal bodily thirst? And he answers in verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life. That's an important text with a vital lesson for the current generation. Communion with God is better than life. That's what David is saying. 
God's love is superior to every other blessing. It's even better than life itself. This is not poetic hyperbole. David's life was literally in immediate jeopardy. Ahithophel had proposed this plan for Absalom's men to hunt David down and kill him on that very night. And in all likelihood, that plan would have succeeded if the Lord hadn't intervened. David knew that his life was in immediate jeopardy. 2 Samuel 15, 31, now David was informed, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Yahweh, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And the Lord answered that prayer. But in all likelihood, this psalm was recorded before David could possibly know that he was safe, for the night at least. And it shows us David's true priority. His pursuit of God was more important to him than preserving his own life from the men who were pursuing him. That's, that's what first drew my attention to this psalm in 2020. You know, when governments around the world were ordering churches to close, and so many churches willingly stayed closed for a year or more, it's pretty hard to imagine, isn't it, that someone with David's perspective would be in favor of closing the temple or halting all public worship in response to a virus that had no permanent ill effects for 99% of the people who tested positive with it. Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day, better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think a lot of us felt that during the lockdowns. What good is life without God's grace and favor? Without the love of God and fellowship with his people, life is, this life is just a miserable prelude to hell. And furthermore, an undue attachment to this life and its passing pleasures, that's a folly and a snare to unbelievers. Scripture says the fear of death is a lifelong bondage. And in fact, it's the very evil that Christ conquered by his death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, Christ partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery their whole lives. Lots of things, lots of things are better and more important than life. And God himself surpasses everything else in that category. David says, my lips will laud you, thus I will bless you as long as I live. What he's describing is verbal, audio, audible, exuberant praise. And here he mentions the lips. In verse 5, he mentions the mouth and then the lips again. So he's praising the Lord openly and unashamedly with his words and also with his posture. End of verse 4, I'll lift up my hands in your name. And so, although David's life is in immediate danger, he's not lifting up his hands against his enemies. This is an expression of praise and blessing. The lifting of his hands, that was as common as kneeling in the prayers and the worship of the Hebrews, and it signified joy and confidence and exhilaration. Here is true relief for the thirsty soul. It's the only earthly remedy, exuberant praise. 
And that's the point of this first stanza. Early and earnestly I will seek the Lord because exuberant praise is the only remedy for a thirsty soul. Water helps when your throat is parched, but praise is the only thing that can salve the hunger of your soul. It's a much-needed relief in a day like today. Stanza 2, though, deals with tonight. Second stanza starts in verse 5 with a summary of stanza 1. My soul is satisfied as with fatness and richness, and my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs. In other words, the praise that he has just been singing about in that first stanza, that's what quenches the great thirst of his soul. And in fact, it satisfies, he says, all of his spiritual appetites. It refreshes his soul like a great feast at a king's banquet would relieve his physical hunger and, and thirst. And in fact, that kind of rich meal is something David as king was no doubt familiar with, but a feast of praise for David was more satisfying than any kind of bodily refreshment. And then remember verse 1, my flesh faints for you. The issue there is fatigue, not hunger and thirst. And Really, when David wrote this, he must have been dog-tired. Nevertheless, he's planning to lie awake for a time because his answer for spiritual fatigue is not sleep, but quiet meditation on the things of the Lord. Verse 6, and I like the way the Legacy Standard Bible punctuates this. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. So he's saying he brings thoughts about the Lord to bed with him in order to meditate on them. Now, you know, for most of us, I think when we're trying to go to sleep and we put our minds in, in a neutral gear, that's when evil thoughts are probably most likely to assault. David had learned to use that time to meditate on the Lord. And in fact, I remind myself of this frequently when I struggle with this insomnia. This is an ideal way to at least redeem the time. It may not cure your insomnia. It hasn't cured mine. But it will redeem the time. And it's how David found refreshment for his fainting flesh. By the way, verse 6 seems to suggest that David is talking here about a prolonged period of meditation because it says, I meditate on you in the night watches, watches, plural, You know, the Jews of that era divided the night into three watches. There there was a night shift of priests who served through the night in the tabernacle. You may remember that when we studied the Pilgrim Psalms. So the the tabernacle was never closed. It was a 24-7 operation. There were always people on duty. And Matthew Henry suggests that David may have been marking the passing of the night watches, wishing that he could be with those nocturnal priests. David says what he was thinking about was God. It's a silent study and meditation on theology proper. Good time to do your theological meditation. And by the way, the Psalms are full of this same theme. You'll notice it in several of the Psalms, not just the Psalms of David, but Psalms that were written by other authors as well. I think the Psalm writers were they tended to be afflicted with insomnia because Psalm 127 verse 2, one of the pilgrim psalms that we studied a few years ago says, God gives sleep to his beloved ones. 
And that's a generally sound truism, but there are also those times when God keeps us awake. Psalm 77, verse 4, Asaph writes, you have held my eyelids open. Remember, in those times when God seems to be keeping you awake, that's a perfect time to engage your mind in praise and meditation. Psalm 77, right after he says, you've held my eyelids open, Asaph says he's singing hymns and meditating, and he says it like this, Psalm 77, verse 6, I remember my music in the night. I am musing with my heart. Psalm 42, verse 8, a song of the sons of Korah. By day, Yahweh will command command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Psalm 119, 55, and this is a, a psalm that's unattributed to any author, but it says, I remember in the night your name, O Yahweh. Psalm 1, or also verse 48 in that same psalm, verse 148, my eyes eagerly greet the night watches that I may muse or meditate on your word. And Psalm 149, verse 5, also an anonymous psalm, let the holy ones exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds. Notice how many times the psalm talks about singing songs in the night, basically when you can't sleep. Now, might be good if, if, if you have a spouse sleeping next to you to sing those songs quietly, because insomnia is contagious, you know, and you don't want it to be. But now, back to our psalm. The rest of stanza two expands on that opening phrase of the psalm, oh God, you are my God. That's the opening motif of the song. And now verse seven is like a recap of that theme, but now it's embellished with some specific details. You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. I like that expression, the shadow of your wings, and so did David. He used it in Psalm 17, verse 8, hide me in the shadow of your wings. He used it in Psalm 36, verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the sons of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. He used it again in Psalm 57, verse 1, written really when he was a much younger man, hiding in a cave from Saul, he wrote, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Psalm 61, verse 4, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And one of David's ancestors, Boaz, used a similar expression. He told Ruth, May Yahweh fully repay your work, and may your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now, God obviously doesn't have literal wings. This is symbolism to show how God's comfort to us is both a shelter and a reassurance, a comfort. Here in our psalm, David is not asking for immediate deliverance or violent revenge or or the sudden destruction of his enemies, because remember, his enemy here is his beloved son. He isn't seeking an exemption from the difficulties of life. He, he is, doesn't ask to be removed even from the wilderness. He just wants a little peace and shelter in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Wings, think about it. Wings would be no shelter against an army, of course, but they do afford a hiding place. 
A shadow doesn't change the actual climate of a hostile desert, but it does give some relief from the blistering sun. As as long as the Lord himself is the one overspreading us with wings of comfort, that's protection enough. Stanza 2 then ends with this, verse 8. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And again, that elaborates on the opening words of the psalm with an affirmation of David's absolute dependence on God. So to review, stanza 1 Today I will seek you earnestly. Stanza two, tonight I will meditate on you in the night watches. Now stanza three, verses nine through 11, tomorrow. Tomorrow, verse 11, the king will be glad in God. He's so confident of triumph that he can sing about his triumph even in this wilderness of trouble. Those who wish to destroy him, will themselves utterly be destroyed, verse 9. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for foxes, verse 10. Literally, it means they'll be eaten by jackals. It's the same Hebrew word that signifies either a fox or a jackal. I like jackal better because it graphically signifies that they will die in disgrace without honor without so much as even the dignity of a proper burial, because jackals only eat unburied corpses, carcasses. And as for David, he'll have victory over all his adversaries. He will be glad in God, verse 11. When this trial is all over, David's mouth will testify about the glory and the goodness of God. In other words, he will proclaim the very same truths that he's been meditating on. While his mouth is singing for joy and celebrating with a victory song, while everyone who swears by him will boast, verse 11, even the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. So this is an amazing and triumphant psalm full of the kind of gladness you would not expect in these circumstances. Every verse stands in absolute defiance of the circumstances in which it was written. Consider these stanzas in order one more time. Each stanza answers an aspect of the difficult circumstances out of which David wrote the psalm. A thirsty soul with fainting flesh in a dry and thirsty land. Verses 1 through 4 show us that the source of relief when our souls are thirsty is exuberant praise. Verses 5 through 8 tell us that the way to gain strength when our flesh is fainting, is by quiet meditation. And verses 9 through 11 teach us that we can find refreshment in a dry and weary land through a triumphant song. Exuberant praise, quiet meditation, and triumphant songs. Those are the principal ingredients of public worship. What David is doing here is modeling for the nation of Israel and for all believers of all time This is how we can answer the trials of our earthly lives, the the flaming darts of the evil one, the weaknesses of our own flesh, even the enmity of evil men. The best spiritual remedy for all of those trials is worship through praise and meditation and song. That's a promise for believers. What if you're not a believer? What if you've never 
truly been converted. You can't honestly say, God, you are my God. You have no joy in the things of the Lord, and you have no assurance of triumph in the end. And the multitude of people live that way. If that's you, you are dwelling in a land that is spiritually more dry and more weary and more waterless than any wilderness that a believer might ever wander into. And you're cut off from the God who guides and shepherds His people through the wilderness. And worst of all, you're headed to a place of eternal ruin where Jesus says the fire is not quenched. But there's good news. Right now, Jesus offers the water of life freely to all who turn from their sin and seek salvation in Him alone. There's no ritual to perform. There's no formula of words to recite. There are no works of righteousness by which you can gain merit with God. Jesus has already acquired all of those things, all of the merit that's necessary on behalf of those who trust Him, simply trust Him as Savior. Turn to Him in faith. Scripture says, come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and He will give you rest. He's gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Scripture makes all of those promises and then says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our psalm is simply David's personal testimony to the truth of that promise. And for you who are believers, let this psalm encourage you to make worship your default response to the troubles of this life. When you find yourself in some spiritual wilderness, when you are dry and weary, when enemies threaten to undo you, you need to respond the way David did, with a song of triumph and praise. And in all likelihood, the fact is, no earthly trouble that you're likely to ever have to endure will be as catastrophically life-threatening as the circumstances that were immediately surrounding David when he wrote this song. So join him, raise your voice, lift your hands in praise to the Lord. You can do that even if you're not a charismatic. And then let the Lord lift you above all your troubles. Respond with exuberant praise and quiet meditation and a triumphant song and see for yourself how that thoroughly quenches every spiritual thirst you can feel. To borrow words from Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we do take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We live in a time of political turmoil and unbelief and open hostility to biblical truth. Give us this steadfast courage that David shows in this psalm. Make us men and women after your own heart. Cleanse us from our fleshly desires. Give us a yearning for close communion with you. And may we answer that yearning with praise for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.